see what you have. No! No to spectacle. No to virtuosity. No to transformations and magic and make believe. No to the glamour and transcendency of the star image. No to the heroic. No to the anti-heroic. No to trash imagery. No to involvement of performer or spectator. No to style. No to camp. No to seduction of spectator by the wiles of the performer. No to eccentricity. No to moving or being moved. Yvonne Rayner. No Manifesto. 1965. Buster! It's a bird! I know it's a bird! I'm on the phone! It walks on my pillow! Well, after Houston, I got to a dock in Eagle Pass. And a coyote got me across the border. The past two years, I've been working security for a group in San Miguel. Feds never ID'd me, you know, so I figured, hell, two years pass. Things chilled out. It's cool for me to come back, stick my head up. That would be tough, man. Thinking you've been dead this whole time. I got look dead, motherfucker. Hey, Jimmy, talk for me. <laughs> I talk right now, dude. <laughs> that fucking bong kicked my ass. <laughs> <laughs> Bonfires burning bright. Pumpkin faces in the night. I remember Halloween. Dead cats hanging from poles. Little dead are out in droves. I remember Halloween. Brown leafed vertigo. Where skeletal life is known. I remember Halloween. This day anything goes. Burning bodies hanging from poles. I remember Halloween. Top of the morning to you, you razor blade laced candy apple eating screedlers. We are getting so close to the moment of truth. The veil between the land of the living and the dead is becoming thinner. Soon, the screedlers of time immemorial will gnash their teeth and claws, tearing through the ether that separates the now from the then. They will return for one night, and one night only. We, the screedlers of the living, will encounter the screedlers of the dead. Together, we will screedle as a singular dark flame, enveloping all normies until they, too, understand the clandestine and brooding mass that we have become. Anyways, it's episode 22 of the Humor and the Abject podcast. I'm Stefan Lee, the spooky studio manager, a specter of sound, a banshee of a boss. We're very excited for this week's episode which is sponsored by manifestos, bong rips, knife-wielding toddlers, mysterious tipping sauces, and undercover detectives rising from the dead to infiltrate motorcycle gangs engaged in the narcotics trade. On another note, please mark your calendars for Sunday, October 22nd. 
It is the first ever humor and the abject live podcast with special guests Brett Payne and Brian Quinby from Street Fight Radio. We'll also have comedy from the inimitable Anna Fabrega and the original Space Prince himself, Julio Torres. It's a totally free event at Throne Watches in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Check the humor and the abject blog for details. There is also a Facebook event. I'd like to now turn it over to your trusty host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. Let's get to chewing. I'm Ira Glass. Welcome to Jackass. It's episode 22 of the Humor in the Abject podcast. I'm your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. Uh, right off the top, an item of business. On Sunday, October 22nd, Humor in the Abject is doing its first live episode with special guests Street Fight Radio out of Columbus, Ohio. That's going to be at Throne Watches in Bushwick. Doors at 7.30, show at 8. Comedian Anna Fabrega will be opening up the evening. Oh, hey. After recording this intro, we also confirmed comedian Julio Torres. Bruppeting wah. Hell yeah. Back to you, Sean. If you go to the Humor and the Abject blog, you can get more details for that. There's also a Facebook event. Uh, in other news, hell is empty and all the devils are here. Today's guest is Alex Perlstein, who creates videos, installations, and performances. She has shown all over the place, including MoMA, The Kitchen, The Whitney, Salon 94, Park Avenue Armory here in New York, Berkeley Art Museum, Pacific Film Archive, uh, Ballroom Marfa and Marfa, Texas, MCA Chicago, Parasite in Hong Kong, Whitechapel in London, the ICA in Philadelphia, and far too many others to list. She's also an educator and has taught at Bard, UCLA, SVA, Yale, NYU, and probably some other places that I don't know about. Her work incorporates elements of early performance art, minimalism, experimental theater, postmodern dance, and structuralist film, and yet it exists distinctly outside of any of those canons and seems to be driven by really different objectives that I'm excited to talk about today. What I love about her work is that it activates and simultaneously complicates the relationship between the camera, the viewer, and the subject. So, Alex Perlstein, welcome to Humor in the Abject. How are you? Great. Thank you, Sean. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for joining me. Um, so this is sort of funny. We are recording this on October 11th, and it'll come out on the 15th or the 16th, but tomorrow, October 12th, is exactly eight years to the day of when we first met in Portland, Oregon. Oh, wow. Uh, and you came out as a visiting artist to PNCA, where I was working to do the Caldera residency with some of the graduate students, uh, and I picked you up at the airport. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and when I went back to double check those dates to make sure, because I was like, it was right around this time. Like, I swear it was yeah. around this time almost exactly. And I went back and I, I had to go back into my PNCA email, which I haven't looked at in years. And I name searched you to find, like, when was the arrival. Uh, and then I saw these emails from around then. And I was wondering if you remembered that there was some drama around... Uh, like a luxury lead certified apartment where we put you up with like a set of keys and a fob that had been accidentally taken to the residency and then like the communications department that had formed this partnership with this big fancy condo was all upset because I let you and Kate Gilmore take your keys with you when you left the apartment. I do not remember that drama, but I remember the apartment because it was really nice. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I also remember, and but I, I remember, but I don't remember, that um, me and Kate gave uh, like kind of an assignment on the residency uh-huh. that um, took place during a dinner. Okay. And we loved it, and the students hated it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's been driving me crazy. I can't remember what it actually was. Like what the prompt was? Well, what what the, yeah, what it, what it was. Huh. And I wondered if you rec- remembered it. Kate can't remember either, and I, I haven't been able to track back to my notes from then and maybe oh, i don't man. have notes about it i can't remember but i bet if we asked like that's the Steven, that's the drama that i remember oh, yeah. at any rate <laughs> i bet well Stephen slappy was the faculty member there i bet oh, i could ask I bet him he remembers, he's got like a yeah. he's got a steel trap memory i bet he would remember i'll we can ask him after the show yeah I'll it was some him. kind of like performative dinner uh-huh. thing and I, I, I they felt like we took away their liberties <laughs> um <laughs> all art students are libertarians <laughs> Um, well, besides that, can we kick things off by talking about uh, a recent project of yours? I guess it was last year, but it was uh, Harem Room 1 sure. at On Stellar Rays. And it definitely, I mean, before I saw it in person, I definitely saw it on Instagram. It was a show that people were definitely <laughs> sharing. Um, can you talk about the show a little bit, what it included and what motivated it? I mean, while it was this sort of really poppy visual thing that people were really responding to. It also had this really complexly layered wordplay as sort of its jumping off point for the title. Mm. Yeah. Um, so the title uh, is it? Uh, uh, the title is Harem Room One, as you just said. Um, I came uh, upon some remarks in a Mike Kelly essay um, from his book, Foul Perfection. The essay, uh, it was the essay where he was writing about um, the exhibition that he curated on The Uncanny. Part of that exhibition included a room of um, his collections of uh, things like um, business cards and um, like like his um, collections of detritus in a way. And he referred to uh, those collections as harems. Hmm. Um, so it had to do with a kind of chain of associations and, and, and references to um, uh, collections that are fetish objects coming from Freud and this, uh, like the compulsion to repeat as a fetish and the uh, compulsion to collect. I guess I was, I was looking through that book and thinking about the uncanny and, you know, just how um, these uh, animal objects that I was working with might relate to that. And um, and those am- animal objects were? Cats, <laughs> kitties, <laughs> if you prefer. Small, f- real fur, rabbit fur-covered kitties uh-huh. um, with big expressive eyes. <laughs> they weren't actually were they they weren't actually taxidermied cats. They're not they? taxidermy okay. <laughs> now. No, they're they're um made as a collectible. Um I really don't know who collects them or why or um you know they were ready made that I sourced. I had worked with um, similar kinds of sourced ready made objects when I was working more in sculpture in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. I had been thinking about some of the works that I made then. Um, in the last couple of years, I have found myself thinking back to some of those works, just kind of feeling connected to them again and, and to the ideas. And I, I, I was just doing some searches on some of the materials and objects that I worked with to see if they were still available in the mm-hmm. world. And I came upon these objects. I mean, there are many variations of these, but I found this one group um, of 75 of these, <laughs> and they're the last ones. They're, they're, they're no longer made. And were they at the same source? 
Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they're a, f- a f- they're a finite group, and they yeah are no longer in they're no longer in production. Oh, is there a couple of videos in the show too? Um, yes. So there are also um, two videos in the show. In a way, the impulses behind all three works were similar. Um, I was thinking about a show where each work had an absolutely distinct, you know, like aesthetic and formal um, language, but where uh, the ideas um, and, and the motivations were, were all the same. Um, or not the same, but, you know, uh, really very related mm-hmm. or connected. One video is called The Weather. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, I've made a number of videos over the years set in these kind of blank white spaces, different kinds of blank white spaces, um, cycloramas and other um, spaces that look like maybe white cubes or... Um, this one is a cyclorama. <laughs> what exactly is a cyclorama? Um, it's a space with a uh, there's is it a curve? it's a curved wall. Okay. Um, you see them you see it in commercials all the time. Yeah, and it's um, used for so like there's production, like in, yeah, infinite space. Okay. Yeah, for for um, for commercial production photography. I didn't know if it had a sports element to it or something oh, that I was missing. Yeah. <laughs> And the other video in that was... The other video was called New City, People on Sunday. Uh-huh. It was filmed, filmed on my roof um, where I live in New York on Canal Street all the way on the west side. Is and also a really windy one? Yes, yeah. it, it was very windy. Um, and also in the park right across the street from me called Canal Park. Of course, I, I didn't schedule the wind. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was really windy. And in the end, um, I was it worked out. That yeah. it was really windy. Were those two videos made sort of around the same time? Yeah, I made both of I made both of the videos. Um, you know, within a few, within maybe five or six months of each other. Um, actually, yeah, the windy new city video I made um, probably in the beginning of the uh, late spring two thousand sixteen, and the weather video I believe in the winter of two thousand sixteen. So both were made during the election year, <laughs> which I've been trying to get to that part of it. Um, and and um, at a point at which I was starting to feel super anxious. Yeah. I may have a high level of anxiety on a daily basis anyway, but it was starting to really peak around that time. And that's generally a place where I start, you know, what part of how I'm feeling is connecting to something that seems to be going on in the world. The anxiety that I was feeling wasn't funny. Yeah. (laughs) It wasn't fucking funny at all. I mean, well, rarely Um, is the actual anxiety. Yeah, yeah. So both of those videos came out of wanting to get at something that felt like right now, like in New York even, or like New York as like a location, but here in this country right mm-hmm. now, what it feels like to be dealing with a kind of specter of change. Yeah. It sounds kind of vague, but um, yeah, the possibility of change and, and a kind of anxiety around it. Ever wondered just what in the actual fuck goes into In-N-Out Burger's highly secretive and existentially mysterious burger sauce? LOL. Of course you have. You're no bozo. You're no yahoo. You, dear listener, are a bona fide sleuth of sauces. A detective of dipping. A gravy gumshoe. A condiment code breaker. 
except that you've just recently risen from the dead. Let's break this menagerie wide open and get transparent. To make the famous secret sauce from In and Out Burger, you just need a handful of items you probably already have in your home. Do you have a pen and paper? Yes? Okay. Good. Let's go. You will need 1 cup mayonnaise 1 half cup ketchup 2 tablespoons chopped dill pickles 1 teaspoon yellow mustard 1 half teaspoon salt 1 half teaspoon ground pepper But hey, let's be honest. If you love a good life hack like me, and also love to live on the edge, go ahead and quadruple that ground pepper and kick it up to two full teaspoons. What can I say? I'm a wild and elegant Chauncey. Next put in one half teaspoon sugar. And one teaspoon apple cider vinegar. Stir that all up into a pillowy and velvety cream pouch. Then, add it to your favorite burgers. Try dipping your french fries in it. Or go totally fucking ape shit and gnarl it onto a slop of eggs at breakfast. You really can't go wrong. Not so secret now, is it? Take a bong rip and give a knife to a child. But the a couple of other pieces, uh, Drawing Lesson and Moves in the Field, which are 2012 or 2013, both of mm-hmm. those are circa there. Um, you did a talk at SVA that I saw, and you were describing the drawing lesson is really structured and mm-hmm. almost rigid and moves in the field as this looser um i think you maybe even use the word porous like mm-hmm. response to it and uh maybe like talents and finale from a little earlier in mm-hmm. the career too have a similar relationship mm-hmm. um and is that tactic something that you're consciously employing often where you're sort of creating a work and then one that responds directly to it where I don't know if play is the right word or you have a little a little bit of improv with it but kind of how did how did you come to that as a as a working device to create mm-hmm. something then like well is it just cuz the energy's still there and you're like well now I can I've created a a system now I can kind of push on it and see where else it goes Yeah um I did a project at the kitchen in 2008 um it, uh, the main piece was a four channel simul like four cameras shooting simultaneously. It was like very crazy mm-hmm. <laughs> camera structure to try to um, make happen. And um, Oh, is that the thing? Did you shoot it in the black box and then show it in the gallery? Yes. Is that my, okay. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've seen that online. I didn't get to see it in person, but I know that piece. Yeah. Oh, cool. I think it's what uh, I, I got to rehearse that piece in that space quite a bit. And um, well, now I can't remember exactly. Excuse me. <laughs> I was trying to track back the, um, yes, it's deliberate. <laughs> I'm aware, and it's deliberate that um, quite a number of the projects, the ones you've mentioned, there's like a very structured piece and then, and then a work that I make in response to it that's kind of like a unraveling of that structure. And it comes, yes, out of like the energy at the end of a shoot. So it's, um, it's a way to, um, yeah, like mobilize that like the real energy of people yeah, yeah. who've been working together. Because why waste it when you accomplish something? Yeah, because right? yeah. it's so great. And it's so it's this short period of time. I feel like I spend all this time in my head and writing, and then I'm finally with, with people. <laughs> and, you know, and it's this really intense, compressed time period of, you know, whatever it is, a couple of days. or And at the end of it, that energy that's there is 
yeah, it's it's a great thing to work with. For the project at the kitchen, um, there was a piece that was, ap- I think you said cathartic, or was that just in my head? Oh, no, I didn't say <laughs> you that. You didn't say no. that. <laughs> I can you say would, that. You would never say that it word. It was cathartic. No, I, say that. I probably use that word too much, actually. So. <laughs> there was an object, in, uh, like a prop in the piece that was a, a big uh, foam core wall. Mm-hmm. It was a big foam core board, but it was like a, I used it like a wall. Um, and at the end, uh, we tore it up. <laughs> and um, just like everyone just went at it. So it was totally like task-based performance, which I can do. So I, you know, after directing for days, you know, just jumped in and did that. And then, you know, the other projects you mentioned, yeah, just mobilizing that energy at the end. Yeah. It seems like if you build a momentum and you get to a point to just immediately like slam on the brakes, it's mm-hmm. just like if you're speeding in a car or something like, like all the energy that you built up is sort of waste in the momentum and it's almost like you can still take a corner yeah even if you lay off the gas and just kind of like coast it out and like decelerate and try all of this other stuff while it's going on because yeah that's i'm surprised more people well maybe i mean maybe i'm just ignorant maybe a lot of people work that way but it seems strange to me because i think mm-hmm. so often of when people are trying to uh, complete a project and then they get done with it and you have really built, especially when it's collaborative or, you're, or you have other people involved who have stakes mm-hmm. in it and you get to a spot where there's that palpable energy when you've completed something and mm-hmm. then usually everybody just goes home. Yeah. It's like, what do you yeah, what do you do? <laughs> it seems very strange. Yeah. Um, the relationship between the drawing lesson and moves in the field was a little different. Because um, moves in the field wasn't so much about taking that energy at the end of the shoot, but about um, deliberately setting up like a body of work in which um, there were like two kind of very different structures that played off each other. Yeah. Can you talk um, Can you talk about the, uh, the drawing lesson versus moves in the field? The drawing lesson, I think, uh, about the camera as a kind of... Uh, participant yeah and often work with structures where the camera becomes very evident and in that way and so in that work um the camera is circling a group of people spiraling in i mean i can't remember exactly i think each each take was as like a three circle Mm -hmm. spiral (laughs) so we're circling and closing in on this group of people who are situated in uh chairs and an arrangement that was based on Chardin's The Drawing Lesson. Mm-hmm. And it's like a person sketching a model and then an observer. Yes. Right? Yeah. So it's this triangulation of gaze. And in turn, there's a Giulio Paolini sculpture that was based on the Chardin. Mm-hmm. I guess I think of myself as a figurative artist in a way, and um, that the portrait is never really talked about in relation to performance or or performative work. And I wanted to really address that Mm -hmm. in this work. So um, I think it's about other things too, but that was like a kind of starting point of thinking, thinking about it as like a group portraiture and each take is a different configuration of people and gaze and the camera is circling. I don't know. It's it's a, it's a, it's a sort of complicated structure. That's also very 
simple. Yeah. Way, well, as it as it goes on, they start to really lock their gaze with the camera, right? And then there's yeah. the weird because they can't do the Exorcist head; they can't spin the head <laughs> all the way around. But it just yeah. And then their head like whips background, and it's really that comes from um, in in ballet when you're doing uh, any kind of turn, you have to um, find a fo- uh, something to focus on. It's called spotting, mm-hmm. and you just keep your focus on that point, and you keep your head there as long as possible. Oops. And yeah, yeah. and so I was using that um, specifically. Oh, I used to do that when I waited tables. (laughs) You, you, if you looked at the tray that you were carrying that was filled with drinks, poured all the way to the top, you would always spill it. But if you, I never called it spotting, but you would just find something far off in the distance, and you could move like Hmm. really, uh, very nimbly, like through a space with these, with like. 12 glasses on a tray mm-hmm. that were filled with drinks and you would never spill anything. It's kind of, it's interesting to think about using that as a, uh, a centering device. Uh. <laughs> I didn't know that, I didn't know that I had such a relationship with ballet. That's kind you of did. I wish I knew that when I was waiting tables. <laughs> I think, or I wish it occurred to me because I did know that from knowing how to do yeah, a pirouette. I think, an, I think like a, a sort of mentor server bestowed that on me. <laughs> and said, you know, just you keep spilling drinks, just don't look at the tray. Uh. Look off in the distance kind of thing. Yeah. It's, um, I was, um, I spotted, but I didn't say hello yesterday to um, one of the actors who was in that work. Oh, wow. Because um, I just, I don't know, I didn't want to interrupt her. It just seemed like she was, but um, Valda Setterfield, who was um, the older woman mm-hmm. who's in it, who was um, a Merce Cunningham dancer and yeah, who was yeah. in Yvonne Rayner's Lives of Performers. And like she kind of represented uh, for me a certain, like this sort of postmodern the whole legacy of this kind of postmodern dance and performance. Can we talk uh, about the actors in the work? Maybe, oh, yeah, that yeah. Because I think that one of the things was, and I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but I feel like I remember, um, and it's the same talk that you were doing at SVA, but you talked about in acting, there's this, um, like the actor gives an illusion of something beyond the actor, like a... Uh, like motivations, a backstory, like a psychology, there's something there. Mm. And in performance, that is implying that the performer is suggesting that they're not pretending. I mean, they might be doing some action, but they're not pretending to be necessarily anyone other than the than the body that they're embodying. There's not all this other stuff behind it. And I think you also said something about the work that you make brings attention that is from inserting acting into a space um, where people think there's going to be performance or that the expectation is performance. And I think I understand what that means, but maybe you could sort of elaborate a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. When I started um, uh, working with video and performance, I put myself in my works Mm -hmm. and I have a background in dance, but I was never a professional dancer, but I maybe you know, come at from performance from an understanding of dance and choreography. And then, you know, some other friends who performed um, were in my works. Um, it's like artist friends? Like art, art, artists, exactly, artist friends who performed. <laughs> that's, that's, a cat, that's, a, that's a cat who performed. That's a category yeah, yeah. for me. I have, I have many of them, yeah. <laughs> and to, you know, to varying degrees, like I worked with Michael Smith early oh, yeah. on. Who, cool, friend you know, of the pod. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. <laughs> who's kind of, you know... Sort of an actor, but not exactly. Um, He's good at acting like a uh, a weird amplified version of himself. Uh Most of my friends who are performance artists, that's what they're good at. Yeah, yeah, is being a caricature of themselves. Yeah, not 
embodying surrealism. But anyway, <laughs> so you're working with actor, or sorry, artist friends who are performers. Yeah, and myself, and you know, I felt like I um, got to a point where I, 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 my lim, you know, uh, where my limits were um, limiting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> what I could do as a performer, and then I, I happened to meet some actors who were act, you know, like trained actors at a residency, and without thinking, it was that big a difference I, I worked with some of them at work and it you know blew me away how different it was like the language of my work comes so much from uh, conceptual art minimalism postmodern dance structuralist like all the things you listed <laughs> earlier <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> all that stuff all those <laughs> all those histories all those you know um and that we're, there's not generally an expectation for um, the kind of psychological and emotional presence mm-hmm. that a trained actor can bring in sure. those spaces. And so when I – and I'm talking about 1997 um, where um, two actors, Amy Epstein and James Urbaniak, were in a work of mine. It was very low tech. It was, it was super minimal. And there was something seemed very disjunctive and strange to me about their bringing this whole psychology mm-hmm. into into it, and um, so that became um, something f- very interesting to me, and uh, that it kind of throws off, um, just threw threw off uh, the balance. What about in terms of your? As as you started to work with actors instead of artist friends, um, how did you kind of take on or embody a more, I guess, traditional directorial role where I assume, and yeah. maybe I'm wrong, but if you're working with professional actors, they're probably very used to taking direction and, and expect you to kind of do that versus if it's with your friends, maybe you're like, can, can, can I go yeah. over here or do this or something like that? But I feel like an actor would um, want more from the person who's directing then I feel like I would be able to offer as like a I can make people do stuff in a comedy thing or something but it sounds intimidating to work with yeah like, <laughs> actually um, trained actors I think it's naturally like for yeah. me that was very natural and I think I also learned um from the actors I was working with I, I know I did yeah. <laughs> I don't think I did and yeah but it it that was something that just felt very um natural for me there 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 were times where i thought oh do i need to um like learn about this in a more um structured way but i feel like i've learned about it as i've just through as as, as i as i've gone and um you know there's one act one or two actors who i've worked with um repeatedly yeah, who yeah. i've or, or three or four <laughs> um you know who i've had um yeah, a lot of, you know, sort of back and forth with about sure. approaches. and Yeah, I mean, I've seen there are a couple of folks who reappear in videos that are several years apart. Mm-hmm. And, and there's sort of a, there's an interesting familiarity to it. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, there's the, there's that guy. Yeah, yeah. Or there's that woman <laughs> or, or what have you. Um, as you work with them longer, do they, and I'm asking out of a genuine curiosity because I haven't worked with uh, what might be considered like professional actors before, but... How do they view their role? Is it something where they feel like it's collaborative or are they very comfortable? I mean, I'm sure it's not monolithic, but or are they comfortable just sort of being like, no, I'm here in service of this thing that you're making and I'm playing a role in it? Or are they kind of like wanting to be authors the way that artists sort of 
really want to no no <laughs> no that's um most most actors and and quite a few of the actors who i've worked with um you know work with other um uh, artists as well mm-hmm. and um you know I, ge- I generally not always but you know some of the actors i've i work with are like artist-friendly actors, uh-huh. and some are generally more involved in, you know, more, um, like, narrative theater. And, okay. um, but most have done everything. Um, but generally, no, they are really interested in being there for, you know, like, the vision of cool. <laughs> the artist-director. And um, But um, there's always room for, uh, it's, I wouldn't call it exactly collaboration, but there's a lot of... Um, you know, back and forth, and I'm def- always open to, um, you know, discussion and and uh, you know, things change and things happen that I didn't expect, and yeah, act- yeah. actors bring things to it, and you know, like um, some of the actors I've worked with, um, you know, bring things I couldn't have possibly imagined. Let's make our tartar sauce. I have a cup of mayo in here to which I'm going to put in about two tablespoons of lemon juice, okay? That's about two tablespoons. Take out the seeds. So I'm gonna whisk in about a tablespoon of relish to this, okay? And about a tablespoon of finely chopped uh, red onion. Um, I'm gonna mix this well, and then I'm gonna season it with salt and pepper, okay? That's it. I mean, that is it. A little pepper and a little coarse salt in there. And then mix it. I'm gonna put this in the refrigerator for about an hour before I, I use it, okay? And then it's gonna taste its best. Okay, there you go, my friends. How easy was that? Eat well without going broke, and I will see you soon. Steven Slappy, the artist from Portland. I was texting with him the other day because you were going to come on. I was just like, hey, I know you did this residency experience with Alex in Oregon. And just like, is there um, like anything that I should ask about that I'm not thinking about through research? And Steven said that, and I don't know if this is still the case, but he said something that has really stuck with him was, I think you were talking to him at the time about how as um, in terms of your own inventory of equipment, like you don't keep a ton of video equipment around mm. because you use cameras in really precise ways and mm. that it would almost be sort of um, maybe wasteful or superfluous to like be a gear hoarder. And is that still true? Do you just sort of get the tools for the <laughs> specific funny. thing? Yeah, yeah. Because he's like, he's like a video nerd guy and stuff. So he was like, what do you mean you don't have a tool? You know, I imagine he I'm was the like, opposite of a video nerd <laughs> guy. <laughs> <laughs> cool. <laughs> <laughs> but I was just curious if that was the case because it seems like there's maybe an economy and a portability to what you're doing that, that it serves not to have to have all this stuff constantly or find storage for it if you're like, well, I have a really particular thing that I want to make yeah. in this window no, of time. No, each, each work requires a different kind of camera and different equipment. And, you know, I work with people who know a lot more about that than uh-huh. I do to figure that out. Yeah. <laughs> I can't I can't deal with that stuff. <laughs> um, but in terms of the camera, one of the things that, and I think you sort of 
were alluding to it earlier is that you you make the presence of the camera really really felt in mm-hmm. a lot of the pieces whether it's through tracking on a dolly uh or there's a light affixed to the camera that kind of as it gets mm-hmm. closer to um one of the actors it really kind of blows out their uh the light that's around them but sometimes you can hear the 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 wheels on the dolly tracking and things like that um and i guess my assumption has always been that the purpose of that is to really make me as a viewer aware of my own gaze and my own participation in it because it sort of it doesn't allow one to uh it doesn't allow easy suspension of disbelief i guess mm. because you're sort of zooming around and it's a forced perspective and it seems really choreographed and intentional and um i, I don't know if i'm reading that correctly as a viewer that it's supposed to make me really aware that i'm looking or if it's more a stylistic or something else that you sort of just came to as an artist um no absolutely what you're saying i mean um it comes out of um a kind of brechtian um like to some to some degree um wanting to create that awareness um and and um for me that comes from well what's the point of having something um having like a film in yeah. a gallery space as opposed to in a theater space mm-hmm. so encountering something if it's a yeah film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well there, there's that but um encountering something spatially um for me is a very different kind of viewing experience mm-hmm. and what you just articulated about um, making the viewer aware I think uh, has a lot to do with being in a, in a space with the work rather than sitting in a chair yeah. in a theater. You can be sitting in a chair in a space as well, but I think it's, it's really different. Um, you mean like as a viewer sort of wandering into a gallery, you're not, you're not a, it's not a, a spectator role in the same way. Like you're, yeah, enc- encountering a work in um, a space that you walk into where it's already on mm-hmm. to me is it's a spatial experience. Right. Okay, yeah, yeah. So um, maybe four minutes into it, you don't know yeah. where it started or when it's ending or anything like that. There's there's more to it than that though, um, and maybe it's I just haven't thought about it that much lately. But um, <laughs> um, it has to do with wanting to have a different kind of viewing experience. It seems like the spatial difference that happens is something that is is very intentionally saying that this is not cinema or this is not a traditional narrative film like this is a this is something that the gaze is entering or you're moving around in just like an installation or just like anything else where you're not there's not like a celluloid you know sort of film over the thing that you're looking into this world it's the artifice is made plain yeah i mean i'm saying camera or yes i mean i'm saying spatially but i could also say sculpturally so i'm Mm -hmm. thinking yeah thinking about um if you're in a if you're in a gallery space it's a different it's 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 an experience where you're making choices yeah and the spaces that you um used for quite some time which were black box Mm -hmm. theaters or these sort of seamless um what is it called a cyclozone no cyclo (laughs) cyclorama cyclorama that sounds so much more active than it actually is but um these types of spaces uh or even um what's the one that's in the is it uh i'm sorry i think i said the title earlier but the dance studio one where people are holding up their sort of uh uh talent talent yeah yeah but, but these spaces that, that was are, a rehearsal space right that are associated that's also used as like a, a small like experimental theater space okay um i mean what was attractive about those spaces in terms of maybe going on the thread of the uh, like in terms of psychology like mm. what what is 
interesting about the black box theater or a completely white room that's seamless or a space where people are rehearsing. I mean, they're all a little bit different, but if if getting someone into a psychological experience as they're looking at something is important, what do those afford that say like uh, a set or out in out on the street or something like that doesn't afford you? Yeah, I think it isolates the um, the actor and their own subjectivity. Mm-hmm. So um, as a viewer, you're forced to, uh, well, or it's suggested, <laughs> I hope that you have to um, maybe oscillate between th- that kind of like uh, recognition of yourself through someone else, which is what we do when we watch people, mm-hmm. um, where you're looking at the actor or who they may be representing, so the character. Hmm. Um, without so all of the kind of... Without, without the um, trappings of um, maybe like the everyday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because it does, I mean, clearly it puts it into a, a slightly otherworldly space. I mean, it's the go-to in cinema when they want to present something as being between two worlds right Mm -hmm. it's like that's how it's filmed like if it's in the matrix or this or that it's like all of a sudden they're in a space that is like completely devoid of objects and things like that and it's supposed to be this kind of psychological space in between that sounds really corny (laughs) well no i mean well it's like a trope in cinema but it seems like there's a reason that there's a reason that they're using it and it's because people can go to that space but if the work is primarily presented as almost always occupying that space then it just sort of says that that's the type of experience that the work is supposed to present you with it's not like hey isn't this trippy we just moved into a blank zone Mm -hmm. like it's a it seems a little more like yeah mature or intentional than just like well we didn't really want to build a set to make it look like it was between two worlds so we just put people in a white room (laughs) (laughs) Um, so between the video work that you make or performance art in general. I've heard you talk about this. A live performance doesn't necessarily purport that it's going to, that when you see it, it's going to provide its definitive experience or like the one that will be the performance in perpetuity. It will change every night and that's part of the appeal that, you know, there's something could mess up or something could go wrong or you see it in a different light. Mm -hmm. Um, And what you're making is it's still sort of performative and you have these actors, but you're really creating a a definitive document of what is meant to be seen. Um, And I guess I'm curious if the, the tension that is the tension that you're removing from a live performance experience by doing something that's very fixed and presenting it that way is the appeal for you in that, that, you can do all of these different perspectives that you can kind of control the way that people look at it in the same way that, you know, I have a pretty fixed vantage point at a performance. Hmm. I can maybe move to a different spot in the room, but it's generally considered rude Mm -hmm. to like get up and move around. (laughs) But you are giving people lots of different ways of looking without, um, without having them have to stay in a fixed point. And they can even, they could move around much more freely, I think, watching one of your videos than than if that piece were done live. Yeah, a lot of the choices I've made around kinds of like very structural shooting strategies, but also very um, uh, long durations, Mm -hmm. um, come out of a kind of frustration with live theater. Not necessarily performance art, which I think happens in a different kind of um, time space mm-hmm. <laughs> but that fixed that fixed point that you're talking about i find very claustrophobic and yeah. and you know static and um 
the suspension of disbelief of entering like a cinematic space, um, but one that also um, kind of limits that by not editing it, or not mm-hmm. not limits it, but um, yeah, maybe it is a limit. You know that that there's like a boundary to um, your suspension of disbelief when the duration is long. I've been to some long theater. Yeah. <laughs> There's some very long ones. But I think I, ones that were long just to like fuck with me sometimes. Uh, yeah, they might be fucking with you. <laughs> like just to see if I would <laughs> sit through the whole thing. Well, on films too, <laughs> mm-hmm. like slow, long duration films. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's it's. I, I guess I think about being in between those, in between the liveness of live theater, or or like um, taking it, uh, trying to harness the liveness of live theater within a very mediated cinematic space. And again, it's similar to kind of wanting to insert um, like real acting into um, a space where there's an expectation for maybe like unskilled acting or, mm-hmm. um, perf- you know, something that's more um, thought of as that I would just call performance. Yeah. Uh, that's not about trying to, um, you know, go to this other sort of emotional place. <laughs> And, um, yeah, it's like a similar kind of inversion. Yeah, wanting to get maybe, um, like, film to act like theater and theater to act like film. It's pretty clear that maybe some of your stylistic choices or um, the aesthetics of things are kind of drawing from, like, arty or meta filmmaking um, or some of the choices, like... I think when when you were out in Portland, you had everybody watch this Fassbender film, um, (laughs) Beware a Holy Whore, Mm -hmm. and... I haven't seen it yet, but I've read about it, and I understand that what the what the plot of the movie is, and I can't help but think that that's sort of relevant to the way that you're talking about what your work is supposed to be doing. Um, and could you talk a little bit about your relationship to that movie, or just in a nutshell, what is it about, and and why does it appeal to you? Um. Oh wow! All the fastbender experts out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know that I don't know that this appeals to a broad range of okay. extremely um, no. I'm 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 I, I would call myself a fast bender freak, uh-huh. but um, <laughs> um, well, and he started in theater, mm-hmm. so um, he, he I think very much worked with the kind of um, feeling like the liveness of theater in film and. Um, especially um, in the films where he collaborated with the cinematographer Michael Ballhaus, who died recently. Um, They um, did a lot of just really um, complicated, long-duration camera moves. Um, But not the kind of, like, macho, like, like opening of um, Touch of Evil, Uh you know, or, like... uh, Wait, I haven't seen that. What's what's the macho? Is is the thing in Goodfellas macho? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, the really long... Yeah, 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 yeah. And then they do it in, like, Boogie Nights, too. Yeah. It's, like, a tribute, and it's just, like, going through, and everybody's, like, doing shitty stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then, like, Robert Altman's The Player kind of spoofs all of those, (laughs) and the opening... um, Yeah, there's a a kind of thing in the movies (laughs) about, you know... the long, the long take. Yeah. Um, but in uh, like Fassbender films, like um, uh, yeah, like Beware of a Holy Horror, the whole uh, God, I haven't seen it in a while, but um, I've seen it many times. But uh, 
There's a, a sense that um, there's a sense of spontaneity. Uh-huh. The camera is just beautifully choreographed yeah. and just like almost incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. And and then in fact, there's a scene in Beware of Holy Horror where um, it is like super meta because there's a character who's playing Fassbender and it's uh-huh. it's a movie set and it's um, a film that's. Um, you know, they're having trouble getting the film made. I don't know. I don't give a fuck about the plot, really. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but there's a scene where the character playing Fassbender is talking to the character who's playing Michael Balhaus about um, describing, but being being um, like a characterization of a crazy director, mm-hmm. which he was, mm-hmm. <laughs> but brilliant, um, and explaining this impossible shot. And then they have the impossible shot, and it's so beautiful. Yeah. Um, so it's like it's 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 speaking of abject. There's like there is um, a, this kind of um, sultry abjection uh-huh. in that film that's really like amazing, like delicious. Yeah, I really would love to see. I, something that um, I was reading about it said it was like put you'd a love bunch it, of, Sean. Put a bunch of people Why in a room. Seen it? I don't know. It's I mean it's it's um, something about like putting a bunch of people in a room together and seeing how like sort of like horrible they can be so that was something that i was reading about it and i was just immediately like well that was a very prescient take on what would construct reality television later i mean that's effectively mm. what the point of most uh shows where people have to live in a house together is is be like how much can we make these people have sex with each other or fuck with each other mm-hmm. and that's <laughs> seems like that's about 30 30 years early knew that yeah <laughs> you create yeah. device no it's it's um a, a film set, and I guess they're running out of film, and they parody themselves. Uh-huh. Um, it's in a hotel on the coast of Spain, I believe, mm. and yeah. It sounds very cool. Are there any, uh, besides like very arty films or anything, are there any just <laughs> poppy, goofy films that you have ever drawn influence from, or are you just sort of like, no, I I don't really um, get anything out of those. Oh, I, I'm. Uh, I always have to have one really shitty TV show in my life, uh-huh. um, amongst other TV shows. Sure, but yeah. Um, yeah, there are a lot of poppy things that I've drawn influence from. <laughs> um, like I watch Nashville. <laughs> Nashville. Oh, I haven't seen that. I watch some pretty. I can't. You know, I'm not going to defend it. But it's like fine. I, 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 you know, that that kind of like really sort of good but terrible kind of soap opera like, yeah, yeah i always have to have one of those mm-hmm. to watch i i was watching um i've talked about this on here before but a show i mean i i don't wait is nashville is that about music is that the music show it's, or is it it's set yeah it's set i don't you know it's set in nashville <laughs> it's about like aspiring but it's about i like, don't even like country music i don't fine. you know i can't i can't explain it i don't but, like cops and i like shows about cops Oh yeah, I can't watch cop shows. Um, sort yeah. of like more like like there's a show that uh, Claire and I watched all the way through called Longmire that I've talked about before. Oh. I don't think that people think it's good, but I, I couldn't stop watching it. It's about this like sheriff in Wyoming mm. who there's he lives in the least populated county in Wyoming, which has to be very low population. Um, and there's a murder every episode, and no one no one brings this up that huh. this is like statistically insane that hmm. there are this many murders but let's keep watching and there are things in it that despite my better judgments i sort of maybe think maybe creep into things that i do whether it's like ticks of characters or different things like hmm. that that i find funny or interesting hmm. um although i wouldn't say it's a direct influence. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I like, if I if, when I think about it, um, I mean, the, the watching thing like TV dramas probably influences my work more than all the arty, so to speak, references. That's okay, and you don't have to. <laughs> you don't have to name any names. I, was, I just I watch tons and tons of stuff. Okay. So, I watch a yeah. lot of TV. I I really like watching TV. <laughs> I think it's fantastic. Um, Me too. In like the last couple years, some of the works that you've made though have sort of exited out of those spaces, out mm-hmm. of the black box yes. and out of the um, the I'm not cyclorama. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, but the the works that were at the Unstellar Ray show, um, like the New City that you talked about earlier. Yeah. Um, there's one from 2014 from Miami, The Shining, is that mm-hmm. right? Where people are sort of moving around a sculpture park. Mm-hmm. Um, and then The Dark Pavement Cellar, which is, I guess, from 2013 around the time of those other pieces, though. Mm-hmm. Um, and w- was that just simply a matter of practicality because, like, these are happening in other places? And is it a commission-based thing that it's like, oh, we'd like you to do something in the sculpture park? And you're like, all right, I can respond to that. Or were you thinking I'd like to move these characters and these scenarios into environments that have, I mean, not that those other spaces aren't charged with their own this or that, mm-hmm. but spaces that are charged pretty, um, just literally, because it's like, oh, that is a that is a cellar, that is a rooftop, that is a blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, yeah, no, both. I'm, um, I've wanted to, you know, move out of those spaces. And some of the projects you mentioned, mentioned were commission-based um, and, um, you know, coming out of, um, you know, some of them that I instigated at wanting to respond to different context in history. And um, the work um, from the last show at On Stellar Rays that was filmed on my roof, um, you know, I... I, I wanted to film yeah, yeah. <laughs> on my roof um but the the work that you mentioned the shining was a live performance so it's like doc that's more documentation it's documentation right? of okay. a live performance yeah and um it's it's funny but a few i haven't i've you know done a number of live performances and a few of them have been um like event-based live mm-hmm. performance which i know can be really um a, a lot of artists i think don't like to do, do that. Do you mean like within the context of there's an event happening at an institution and there's a performance that's happening at it? Yeah, so, like, oh, okay. every event needs to have a performance yes, artist doing yes. something. And I've done a couple of those, but I've really... Call that the event economy. <laughs> my, my friend Nicole calls it that. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. Um, but I've I've really enjoyed doing those. Like the... the um, the uh, disruption, uh-huh. I guess, of um, people who are drinking at a party mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, having to deal with that uh, is really... <laughs> I, I, like the, I, I like the verbiage, <laughs> having to deal with that. <laughs> yeah, I like an assignment. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, I like to have something like, you know, like that to rub up against. Um, but The Shining was... Um, um, commissioned from Art Basel, mm-hmm. and it was. I've heard of them. Yeah, <laughs> it was nice. They had a good budget, and uh, um, it was for the uh, opening event in Collins Park. Of and there was, um, it was like part of a group sculpture exhibition of sculptures that were cited in mm. outdoor sculptures yeah. cited in Collins Park, and um, so I had a group of. Uh, performers who were carrying um, these small light panels and they were just uh, 
not they were just, it was rehearsed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, they uh, walked around the park and then um, at various points convened around a sculpture and uh, turned the light off themselves onto the sculpture for, I think it was 30 seconds. Um, and like shone a light on that work. And yeah, then yeah. it was again in the dark, although they were all lit, but they mm-hmm. you know shone a brighter light on it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, it's yeah. That year, I also made another uh, work in a sculpture park <laughs> at the decor of a museum. <laughs> um, sort of thing going with outdoor sculpture for yeah. a while. It's interesting to think about um, because so much of the other video work uh, almost by design excludes an audience to. Mm-hmm turn it into performance and just be comfortable saying, well, I have a video practice and these are like, as you said, you're like, no, that's a performance that I documented. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh yes, there's a line drawn between those two. And so mm-hmm. it's interesting though, as a, as a viewer, somebody looking at the stuff I encountered online and trying to think about like, oh, what's the shift here? Like what went on? You're oh, like, yeah. No, that's a performance in a public sculpture park. That's a different <laughs> thing than my videos, but I like that. Well, thanks so much for coming by and talking with me today. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's a I really, pleasure. I really appreciate it. And to everybody who's listening, thanks again for tuning in. Uh, come on out to the show on the 22nd in Bushwick. It's free. And you'll hear me next week. I'm trying to say that now because they won't see me. Uh, it's, a, it's an audio thing. I haven't figured a sign off yet. I got a pretty strong opening, I think. But uh, <laughs> cool. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.